Thank you for the warm welcome this morning. It really is good to be with you and good to be here physically present together in the building. Um, uh, thank you again for the invitation to be here. So we are, I have a, a PowerPoint which we can maybe bring up just now. We are going to look together at just one, well, slightly more than one verse, and I'm not stealing into someone else's talk for the next week, but uh, the way those who've planned the series have divided Psalm 23 up, they've put, and I think rightly so, the first little phrase in verse 3 together with verse 2. So if you have a Bible there and you want to read along and open that up, do open up Psalm 23 uh, because we'll look at verse 2 and the first little part of verse 2. Now, it's an interesting time to be talking about something like a restored soul. We're going to need to think about what exactly that means, what is a soul anyway. But if we think about the idea of restoration and refreshment and being revived, this is certainly a time when many of us, I think, are aware of our need for that, aren't we? Uh, the pandemic has had a very profound effect on us. Some of us, I'm sure, very, very personally, if we've suffered from COVID, maybe still are struggling with long COVID, or maybe if we've had a bereavement during this time, either due to COVID or uh, just due to other circumstances, but all of the abnormality around how we have grieved and how we haven't been able to do that in a normal way. But the researcher whose work is behind this headline says that even for those of us who haven't been affected in that way, there is something about the fact that there is no definite end to the pandemic. I say we've been through a pandemic. Are we still going through it? How long will it carry on for? We don't really know, and there is no definitive cutoff point. And that in itself is wearying. We're all living with the constant changes in how we should behave, how we should live, how we should get around and, and about our daily business. So I think this is a time when more than ever, many of us will be feeling weary, worn out, tired, fatigued. And so I think it's extremely wise that the leaders in the church here, the elders have chosen this psalm to draw us into, to speak to our hearts, to speak to our souls at this time. And so we do want to think about a restored soul today, and we're looking just at this little section. I'm not going to recap what Stephen uh, said last week, but I thought it's wise to read just the opening words and then the passage we're looking at today. So Psalm 23, verses 1 to 3a. Let's hear these words from the Scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I'm just going to read that again. It's a short passage, but it's very profound. So let these words speak to your heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The basic message, I think, of this little section of Psalm 23 is very straightforward. God restores souls. Four little words at the bottom of the passage that we've just read. He restores my soul. In the original Hebrew, I think that's just two words that form that. I'm going to 
form it into three words, God restores souls. And I want to think about each of those words in turn. What do each of them mean? What is a soul? God restores souls. So what do we mean when we say that? Again, if we're familiar with the Bible, maybe if we've been reading it for many years, this psalm, of course, is, is probably the most familiar, certainly the most familiar psalm, quite possibly the most familiar portion of Scripture, and as Stephen said last week, one of the most famous poems in the world. And so we can, we can trip over words like this or, or run over words like this and not even stop to think, what does it actually mean? The Hebrew word that's translated soul here is the word nephesh. Now, this is not a Hebrew lesson, and if it were, I'm certainly not the person to give it. But it's, it's probably helpful to think because this is a, it's a widely used word in the Old Testament. There's an awful lot in the Old Testament that speaks about the nephesh, the soul. And the soul in the Old Testament is the inner self, distinguishable from the body. Now, that's an important starting point because the world that we live in today, probably, certainly in the scientific community, the dominant way of thinking is that there is only one thing that makes up you, and that is your body. Not all scientists believe that, but that's probably the dominant view. In other words, you are a, a physical thing, you are a body, you're part of a physical universe, and in fact, Many people accept the idea that there is nothing other than the physical universe. And so whenever you have those times of, of thinking that there is a you that inhabits your body, that's really just an illusion. The idea of a self or a, a, a mind or a, a soul of some sort that can be distinguished from your body is an illusion. Now, of course, there's a, a countercurrent to that in our modern culture, because increasingly we come across the idea that the real you may not actually be what your body is. And, and so maybe the real you doesn't align. And so somehow the idea of, of a soul or a being or a self that is distinguishable, distinguishable from the body is still very much there in our culture. And we have these two ideas that either I'm just a body, just physical, or there is something more than that. Well, Scripture is quite clear that we are not simply physical beings. Now, we could also talk about the spirit. You've maybe heard of that body, soul, and spirit. I don't think we would have time to try and tease out uh, all of that, but it is important to realize when we read this that there is something, there is a me, a you and a me that is not simply physical, that is more than just physical the inner you of your thoughts, of your emotions, because the soul in Scripture is the seat of emotions. It is in our soul, in our nephesh, that we feel, that we have desires and longings, that we reason and that we make choices. It's interesting, Scripture doesn't make the hard and fast distinction between emotions and thoughts that sometimes we're inclined to make. So we might like to think, well, you know, I have a mind and I have a heart. We often talk like that. The heart is where I have feelings and the mind is where I think. But actually in Scripture, these two are very closely intertwined. And I think that's also true in our experience, if we're honest. 
Often my thoughts are ways of justifying my emotions. I have a gut reaction to something, I feel like doing this, and I find a way to justify it to myself. And perhaps it works the other way around too. If we convince ourselves of something intellectually, then our emotions can follow after that. These things are intertwined. They can't be disentangled. And the soul is the seat of all of that, where our, our feelings are processed, uh, our, uh, our thoughts go on, our reasoning happens, our decision-making, the choices that we make in life. Now, of course, you could say, well, isn't that all happening in my body? And of course, yes, it is. Your mind is uh, firing off electrical charges between cells and uh, there are chemicals that surround that which affect your mood and so on. Uh, maybe you feel your emotions somewhere else in your body, in your gut or whatever. Of course, the body and the soul are closely interlinked, but they are distinguishable. They're so closely interlinked that it's very clear in Scripture that if the soul is separated from the body, that is death. You cannot be alive physically and not, be, not have a soul, okay? Your body is ensouled or your soul is embodied. The two belong together. And so it's very clear again that, that human beings are meant to be physical. Now it's true that when we die, the soul departs the body and returns to God, returns to God for judgment. But also that the soul has the potential then of resurrection. So when we think of resurrection, that is a, a new resurrection body with which the soul is reunited. And so the hope in the Old Testament and through into the New is that the soul returns to God and awaits this resurrection future. I think that comes up even, that's, that's certainly implicit at the end of Psalm 23. When you get to that, you'll see that. So the soul is the inner you, the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, the decisions, all of these things that you would say, that's, that's me. Not that your body isn't you. Your body is you too, okay? We shouldn't deny the body or reject the body, but that there is this inner self. And I think what this psalm tells us is that God's priority for us is soul health. Now, again, I need to tease that out a little bit. Physical health is incredibly important. Some of you have devoted your lives to the physical well-being of people, and that is a wonderful calling. It is a wonderful thing. Vitally important. We're so thankful for those who can treat our bodies. But God's priority is soul health. Now, again, I don't want to make that sound like I'm saying there is physical health and there is soul health and the two don't interact with each other. Of course, they do. It's very, very clear that if your soul is unhealthy, if your emotions are low, if you're not in a good place emotionally over a period of time, that will impact your physical well-being. Not just that you start to feel those emotions physically. Some of us do that more than others. Uh, we, when we're, we're feeling down, we feel it physically, others less so. But actually that ongoing 
struggles with your mental health, your mental well-being, eventually they wear down your immune system. They make you more prone to physical illness. There is an interplay. And of course, that's true the other way around. If you're living with chronic pain or chronic physical illness, then you're going to eventually feel down and low in your soul, and you may even struggle in your relationship with God. These things interplay with each other. But when I say that God's priority is soul health, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about your physical health. We ought to take good care of our bodies because they belong to God. They are God's gift to us. But the reality is that sooner or later, this body will wear out and it will die. And the priority for God is that our souls would be restored so that our soul can return to Him in relationship with Him and then be reunited with a resurrection body in the future. In other words, God does want to heal your body totally, but the way that God will do that is through resurrection. It's not here and now in this life. God may give you healing of your body now. He might do that through the skill of doctors and others. He might do it through your body's natural ability to heal itself. He may even do it in, a, in what we might think of as a supernatural way, a way that we cannot explain. But God nowhere promises that total physical healing now in this life. Sometimes people can teach that kind of thing, and it's, it's wrong, it's misleading, because the total physical restoration is future. It's resurrection. That's the hope. But soul restoration is what God promises now and what God brings now, the restoration of the inner self. And it's His priority that our souls would be healthy, not, not His priority that our bodies would be healthy. That will come in due time with resurrection. And it's not either that, that God's priority is that our behavior gets restored. Of course, God wants us to behave well. He wants us to do the right thing. But there's a misconception, isn't there, that, you know, religion and Christianity, that's all about doing the right thing and behaving the right way, speaking the right way and going to church and doing the right things, all of this behavior modification. And God wants that, of course. He wants those good things in our behavior, but they, they should flow from a restored soul. God doesn't want our outer being, our outward behavior to, be, to look right, but the inward soul is corrupt and broken and far from Him. He wants to change us from the inside out so that we do what is right. God restores souls. The second word in that three, it's actually the first in the three, but the second one I'm going to talk about is the word God. It is God who restores souls. Now, if I asked you the question, how do you restore your soul? If your soul is your, includes your emotions and your thoughts, what do you do when your emotions are low or, or when your thoughts are a bit jumbled up? Well, one of the things that I often do on those occasions is get out into nature 
This photo I took yesterday on the, by the still waters of Loch Ness, uh, cycled out there from Lisburn, so I got a bit of exercise. And that's good for us, isn't it? I, I looked at nature and enjoyed the beauty of it. I felt the sun, it was sunny yesterday, and beaming down on my back and warming it up, and, and it was beautiful. It was lovely. That was restorative. Yes, I exercised. I, I enjoyed nature. I slowed down. I stopped. I rested. I had a Sabbath yesterday. Saturday is my Sabbath, and I, and I don't work on a Saturday. And these things are good things that are good for our souls. We know that from our experience, but it shouldn't surprise us because these are all things that God's Word talks about as well as being good for our souls. The other thing, of course, that you might do is to get together with friends, to talk to people. And that's also a very wise thing, isn't it? Not to bear your, your burdens alone, but to share them. As I often say to my teenage son, that a, pro, a problem shared is a problem halved, isn't it? And we know that in our experience, just someone who will listen, someone we can share that with. Not bottling it up, but, but letting out good wisdom. Again, it's, these things are widely advised for the well-being of our mental health, and they're, they're true, and they're right. And of course, God, Scripture makes it clear, has designed us for community with people, for relationships. These things are good. They are good for us. We should get good rest. We should exercise. We should get out in the fresh air, enjoy nature when we can. We should open up with people, build friendships. Of course, when we think about relationships, we might particularly think about romantic relationships and a life partner, and many of us long for that, and many of us will be thankful for that as part of how our souls are restored. I am certainly for my wife. But these things cannot bring the ultimate soul restoration. They are good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. Nature and going with nature, and, and so on. That might be wise and good and resting, but that's not going to sort out the deeper issues with my soul, with my heart. People can help me along, and, and that's wonderful, but they cannot bear the weight of the deepest needs of my souls. Even my wife, and I, I'm not at all sarcastic when I say wonderful as she is, she is, but it would be very wrong of me to expect her to bear the full weight of my soul needs, because she cannot. She has her own soul needs. And so wonderful as it is to have a wife, and, and if you think, well, I wish I had a, a partner because that would solve my needs, well, that's not true. Where do we find ultimate soul restoration? Well, I found this little picture online that says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will restore you. You know who said it? Well, if you're familiar with Scripture, you might think those words are familiar because they're very, very close to words that the Lord Jesus spoke, aren't they? But the picture doesn't say that. The picture says, your higher self. Who restores me? This, I think, is the dominant message, actually, in the culture that we live in today, that you restore yourself. It's certainly the message that younger people are faced with 
implicitly around them all of the time, that you need to have your own soul restoration project, your self-discovery project, find out your true self, your inner being, and then feed that and build it, and don't let anybody else tell you what you are, because only you can know who you are. Now, I said there was wisdom in the top two pictures. There is no wisdom in this message whatsoever. This is a cruel and false lie, the idea that you can restore your own being yourself. That way of thinking does not lead to soul restoration. In fact, as Glenn Harrison, who's a retired professor of psychiatry and a fine Christian, has written in his book, The Big Ego Trip, he has looked at this culture, which, which basically is a culture of self-esteem boosting, which is very, very prevalent in parenting advice. You know, what you need to do is encourage your children, give them unconditional positive affirmation. Don't tell them off. Don't punish them. Just reward them. Or in teaching, I think these ideas are influential as well. And Harrison looks at the fruit of that, and he says, the pursuit of self-esteem leads to a treadmill of self-monitoring and accentuates chronic comparison-making with other people. And social media, of course, feeds this all the more, doesn't it? Always comparing with other people. And when you do that, you know what happens, especially in the social media world where everybody else's life looks wonderful and great you're going to feel inferior and you start to feel worse about yourself, not better. And so this, this recipe, this solution that is proposed by our culture that you restore yourself is actually doing the very opposite of what it promises. Because when you don't know, Harrison says, what you are for, what your purpose is, it can be hard to believe your own propaganda about what you're worth. <laughs> Self-praise is no praise at all, is it? Telling yourself that you're worth something without reference to anyone else, well, it doesn't, doesn't do the job. The only person who ultimately restores your soul is God, Yahweh. I know Stephen talked last week about the meaning of this name, this name which carries the idea it relates to what God said to Moses in Exodus 3, as Stephen explained last week, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, God said to Moses. God, who is self-existent, Stephen said last week, self-sufficient, God who is the only one who is utterly sufficient in himself. You are not, I am not, because you and I are creations of God. God is self-sufficient. We are dependent. We know that, don't we? We have to eat to keep the body alive. We have to breathe. We have to take in things from outside. And it's true emotionally as well. I'm not self-sufficient. Only God is self-sufficient. Not only that, I am changeable, to say the very least, almost as changeable as the Northern Ireland weather. I'm up and down like a yo-yo. The thought that my emotions or my thoughts could be disentangled by me or that they could become a reliable guide to me for my life is a, is a horrifying thought. And the idea that young people are being told that that's going to be your guide in life, follow your heart, 
is horrific. That is the path to disaster. But God is not changeable. He's not up and down. He's not one thing today and another thing tomorrow. He's not five different emotions before breakfast. God is constant, faithful, unchanging. God is the faithful, steady one. And therefore, He is the only one who can plumb the depths of your soul, your heart. He's the only one who can restore your soul. He's the only one who can bring your soul into line with what is not just feels good for you, but what is ultimately true and right and good. God is the restorer of souls. That is a wonderful truth. You don't need to bear the pressure of figuring out who you are. God can tell you. You don't need to fix yourself. God can fix you. God restores souls. What does it mean for God to restore our soul? Well, to answer that, we need to think about what's gone wrong with our souls. I find it interesting that David, the psalmist, uses the image of a sheep but a sheep in green pastures and beside still waters, in my very limited experience of sheep, which means looking at them out of the window of the car, they're usually living up in the hills, in the mountains, in, in sort of rugged land. They're not usually down in the good land because that's presumably where cows are and sheep can survive up in rugged places. But the sheep here is in green, verdant pastures by still waters, provided with plenty Plenty to, to eat, plenty to drink, easy to get at, able to lie down, able to rest, able to know that the pressure is off. It's not the only image in this psalm, and you know that if you know the psalm. It goes on to dark valleys. But first comes the green pasture. First comes the still waters. First is the call to stop slow down, to receive from God what we need, to let Him restore our soul. Because with God, there is plenty. It's not a famine. It's not a drought. It's, it's plenty. It's not hard work to find the water or to get it. It's still water. It's a safe place for damaged souls. Souls that are damaged by what? Well, I started off mentioning the pandemic, certainly damaged by the pressures around us, no doubt about that. Damaged by the sins of others against us, some of us in very deep, painful ways. The things that others have said to us, have done to us, that mean that we're broken. That certainly is something our culture would recognize, the pressures of the pandemic, the burdens of what others have done to us and said to us. But we need to be honest and say that the deeper issue, even beneath all of that, is not just what happens to me from outside, but what is in me, my own evil desires. The things that, frankly, I believe and choose because it suits me, because I want to do it, because I'm selfish. And my sins... I'm not simply broken because I live in a broken world. I am broken because I have broken myself. I have broken God's law. I've broken other people through my behavior to them. 
And until I recognize that and come to the only person who can fix these things, who can restore these things. You see, the good gifts of God in nature and in other people can go a very long way to relieving the pressures that are on us from outside. Positive words from other people can really help against the negative words that we've heard in our upbringing or from others. But no other person and no encounter with the natural world can forgive your sins. Only God can do that. And no one else can cleanse you from your sins. Only God can do that. Only God can restore you, can make you a new person, can change you into the likeness of His Son, can produce in you character that is like Jesus. How does God do that? If you'll bear with me for a minute, I want to share a personal experience of a, a friend who I made on a glow team. I used to go on the glow teams alongside the Northfield uh, event down in Newcastle. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. And for, I think, five, maybe six years, I went on that team. And yes, that is me um, <laughs> on the, the left of the picture. And the two fellows who are with me are both from Germany, but the one in the middle is the one that I want to mention to you, Dietmar Zimmermann. 1993, I was 17, and Dietmar came on that glow team. The picture's taken at night, so it's not the best picture. Dietmar looks incredibly serious, and Dietmar looked very serious most of the time. But Dietmar was a deep, deep person and a deep Christian. Some of the others in the team and some of the local people, I'm afraid, didn't get him, I think, he, because he wasn't into the banter and so on. Um, but Dietmar was a genuine person. He was a few years older than me, uh, maybe five or six years older. And Dietmar's story was that he had been born in Romania, and like many Germans, ethnic Germans in Eastern Europe, he and his family had felt or had had to move into Germany. But they found that they spoke an old dialect of German that wasn't modern German, and it, and, and it wasn't easy to fit in. And so that was Dietmar's story, but he was a believer in the Lord Jesus. He came again on that team the following year in 1994, and this is a picture that I took on our afternoon off. Dietmar and I, I think we were the only two who fancied a walk up towards Sleeve Donard. I don't think we climbed to the top, but this is up in the, the woods above Donard Park. And it's because of this experience that I'm sharing this with you in the context of Psalm 23, because as we stopped on that walk, Dietmar did what Dietmar always loved to do, whether it was an afternoon off or not, to open up the Word of God and to talk about the Lord. That's true restoration for a friend, isn't it, whenever you actually share with them from God's Word? Maybe we could do an awful lot more of that. And Dietmar opened up Psalm 23 and particularly the verses that we're looking at this morning. But he also opened up Mark's gospel, chapter 6. And he showed me how in Mark 6, it talks about the Lord Jesus, and it says that he looked at the people and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
We're familiar, I know Stephen referenced it last week to John 10, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. But here, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the Lord, taken flesh, become human. The Lord, Yahweh, the I am, that's a remarkable thought. The self-existent eternal one has come amongst us. And he looks at people with compassion, and he looks at you with compassion. He loves you. But as you read on in Mark 6, it then, one of the most famous events in Jesus' life, he feeds the 5,000 plus. But in Mark's gospel, it has this little phrase that Jesus commanded them to sit down on the green grass. It's only Mark who includes that, Dietmar showed me. Green pastures. And what happens next in Mark 6 after the feeding of the 5,000? The disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and the winds come up, and the storm blows, and they're afraid. And what does Jesus do? He comes to them. He gets into the boat with them after walking on the water. He says, take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. And he calms the storm, and he creates still waters. Dietmar showed me that connection. Jesus is the one who restores souls. How does he do it? Well, look at what Jesus did when he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. Yes, he fed them physically, but that in itself was was pointing to what he had already done in teaching them. He fed them with truth, the truth of his words. And how did he still the waters? With his presence that cast out fear. Do you see that? In 1995, Dietmar wasn't on the team, but when we arrived at the Glebe down in Newcastle, I'm sure some of you know at the place where we stayed, there was a parcel from Germany full of Ritter chocolate bars for the team. It was true in 96 as well. Dietmar didn't forget us. He was praying for us, supporting us, and encouraging us with bars of chocolate that might explain a thing or two, but anyway. But... Later in that year, 96, I got a letter from Daniel, the other chap in the first picture, to say that Dietmar was very unwell. He had melanoma, skin cancer. It was spread throughout his body, and he wasn't expected to live for many more months. And I was able in over New Year in 1997 to go and to see Dietmar in Germany, in the Black Forest where he lived. A few months later, Dietmar died at the age of 26. Uh, I I can honestly say, even though we met on a couple of GLOW teams, we met once in Germany, we corresponded, as you did in those days, by handwritten letter. Dietmar was one of the best friends, perhaps the best friend I have ever had. Not just because we didn't do a whole lot of stuff together, but because there was a depth in that friendship. And because he opened up the Word of God to me, and he modeled to me, What an older-than-I-was Christian man could be, someone who loved the Lord Jesus. Dietmar, to me, was a model of a restored soul. His life was not long, his physical life in this world, but he left an impact on me and I'm sure on many, many other people. He was quiet. He wasn't the life and soul of the party, but he was faithful. And when he had opportunity, he testified to the goodness of God. Jesus 
as Dietmar knew and testified, and as he showed me from Mark 6, Dietmar knew, and I know by God's grace, and you can know, that Jesus restores souls by his words and by his presence. What you need for the restoration of your soul is not simply a boost to your self-confidence. It's not just slightly more positive emotions. Those are good, of course. But it's reality. It's truth. And the truth of God's Word, the warnings of God, the commands of God, the promises of God to cling to in your time of need. And what you need is not only the Word of God, but the presence of God. The Lord Jesus is present with us through the Holy Spirit who indwells His people. And the great, great tragedy, perhaps, certainly of my life, maybe of yours too, is that there are green pastures available to me in the Word of God. There are still waters available for my soul in the presence of the Lord Jesus, who says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. They're present, but I don't lie down. I'm like the sheep in the green field running around like a headless chicken instead of stopping and taking in the truth of God's Word. So I urge you, I commend it to you. Take time. Make it your habit to feed on the Word of God, to enjoy the presence of God, and let Him restore your soul. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continue your work of restoring our souls. We thank you that this is what you do, Father. You don't leave us broken. You forgive sins. And if there is anyone here today who has never come to you to know the forgiveness of your sins or watching online, I pray that they would do that, that they would know that if they confess their sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive them. And not only to forgive, but to cleanse them from the stain of past sins to restore them, to give them hope. And Father, you're here to do that for us too, not simply in our emotions, not simply in our thoughts, but from the very core of our beings to make us into the people that you always intended us to be, people who are like your son, the Lord Jesus. I thank you for the life of Dietmar who modeled that to me, we thank you for others who have modeled it to us, but we pray that we, your people, would continue to feed on the green pastures of your word and promises and to rest in the confidence of your presence with us, to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus saying, don't be afraid, I am with you. Help us, Father, to endure through the challenges of life because we know that you restore souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.